My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It's one of my favorite quotes, and I think very often these same beautiful souls who've been through a lot also better the world. I have so much respect and admiration for people who turn their hardships into activism, and I really believe that the arts are one of the most powerful ways to do so. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. Today, you're going to hear from Winnie M. Lee, a writer, activist, and researcher whose debut novel, Dark Chapter, was inspired by her own experience with sexual violence. It ties into feminism, the Me Too movement, and putting an end to this kind of violence. If any of these topics are a little sensitive for you, remember to take care of yourself first, whether that means listening in full or talking to someone about it or breaking away as needed. Also, a quick reminder to sign up for Girl Boner updates at augustmclaughlin.com. If you haven't, I send updates about once a month, which include news about my forthcoming Girl Boner book, freebies, some behind-the-scenes fun, and more. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for my name and connect with the Girl Boner Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash my girl boner. This episode is brought to us in part by the Pleasure Chest, my hands down favorite place to go for sex toys, sexual health products, and free workshops if you happen to be in the LA, New York City, or Chicago area. Learn more or start shopping at thepleasurechest.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Winnie. I've really been looking forward to to meeting with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So you graduated from Harvard and were working as a film producer in London when your life was disrupted. What can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, so that experience, if that's what I guess we're going to call it, um, sometimes I refer to it as the incident, um, but it's obviously much bigger than that. That took place in April of 2008, so almost 10 years ago. And um, like you said, I've been working as a film uh, producer up until then in the the film industry in London. And we produced a number of films, which had done quite well, got to go to the Oscars because one of them got nominated for a short. Amazing. Yeah, um, we didn't win, but it was still quite cool to go to the Oscars. Um, and I kind of thought that was what my career was going to be. I was just going to be, you know, you know, it's, it's an industry where obviously you have to work very hard and be very passionate about it. But I was and I was just going to be living in London, you know, maybe move to L.A. and and work in film as a producer. And then something happened that totally changed the course of, I guess, my life. And that was in April 2008. I, I was in Belfast. I'd been invited there essentially for a business trip. And I, I love the outdoors. I mean, so for me. I'm kind of almost happiest when I'm out in the outdoors, uh, in nature, um, on my own, actually, um, because I like going hiking on my own. So I went for a hike on my own um, outside of Belfast, and I had my Lonely Planet guidebook, and it sort of described this 11-mile hike. Um, So I remember going to this business trip and having all these kind of events and cocktail parties and stuff I had to go to, and then thinking, like, if I can make it to Saturday, then on Saturday I'm going to spend the whole day hiking on my own. Um, So I was really looking forward to that. And I, um, I went, and I, you know, 
packed my 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 day pack with my water and my granola bars, and I got on my hiking shoes, and I just started this hike, um, which started in a city park on the outskirts of Belfast, and it was going to go into the hills. And about ten miles into that hike, I was approached by a young boy. I'd say he was probably about in his teens, and and he kind of said he was lost and he was looking for directions. I remember thinking that was strange because obviously, so I'm Chinese American, and if you hear me, I obviously sound American. So I thought it was strange he was asking me for directions when I clearly wasn't from Belfast, and um, and I tried to help, but I was just kind of like, you know, I think you go down that way if you want to go to Andersonstown. Um, and I guess he just sort of used that as an opportunity to to start talking to me. So I had this very strange ten minute conversation, and I think a lot of people, if if you're kind of walking through a city or a place, you might have a strange person come up to you and start talking to you. I had one of those weird conversations where I'm like, I don't know where this is going and why is this person talking to me? So after about 10 minutes, I said, well, you know, I, um, I got to make a phone call to a friend, you know, something that any of us would try to do. Um, and then um, tried to call a friend, didn't have any reception at the time. And, but I, you know, I was really out there to hike. So I just kept on going on the trail and little to my knowledge, he actually was following me. So it went on for about 10, 15 more minutes and I got to a really remote area of the park and I actually, at that point, I was, I'd climbed a slope and I looked down and I saw him coming up the slope after me. And I just remember thinking, actually, I think I'm in trouble <laughs> because why would this kid be following me? And um, that, yeah, there was nobody else around at the time. So I tried to get away, but I, I couldn't. Um, and obviously he had planned to do more than just ask me for directions. So mm. I, I was assaulted and I was raped and um, it was a pretty violent experience overall. It was about, um, I had that 39 separate injuries after the assault. Oh and I'm so sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, I am too, obviously, right? And it was one of those things where I was like, wait a second, I sat out here to go hiking on this afternoon. And the next day was actually the red carpet premiere of a film I'd worked on in London. So I was planning to go back to London and go to that. But um, then in the course of the afternoon, like everything changed, like fundamentally. Absolutely. I have to ask, I've heard that people tend to go into a state of fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. What was your kind of physiological state? Did you kind of gravitate towards one of those? I tried the first two. I tried um, fighting at first and it became, well, actually I tried fleeing at first, right? So when it dawned on me that this kid was still following me and it probably wasn't safe, I did try to run. But by that point, he kind of caught up to me and it was very confrontational. So then it sort of became a bit of a fight. But, you know, I haven't been raised to be a physically violent person, right? I did some self-defense training, but none of that kicked in when you're panicking. And so I tried to fight. And during the course of that, I realized, well, this person's incredibly violent and much more capable of physical violence than I am. So I, I realized, actually, if I kept on trying to fight, he was just going to get more and more violence. And I probably, you know, could have died. I, you know, he was choking me. I couldn't breathe or anything. And, uh, you know, I had been punched in the head. So I'm like, I, I'm either going to die or develop brain damage or something. So I then decided to just sort of give in to his demands effectively. And did he continue, like, leave you there? I mean, how did you get away from that situation? Yeah, so it's a strange thing. Um, and I, you know... I think maybe other victims of sexual assault might find the same experience where once 
once you sort of give in to whatever this person's asking for, it doesn't become as physically dangerous, right? So it, so it becomes a survival. That's a survival decision. It's always a decision of survival. And that's why, you know, it, it really angers me when people say, well, why didn't you just try to do this and this and this? It's like, well, your brain is assessing what is going to be the safest thing for you to actually get out of that alive. Yeah, and, absolutely. And like you said, you were being injured. Yeah. And you knew that if you kept fighting, yeah. you would get hurt more or potentially worse. Yeah. So it became this very bizarre sexual experience. I mean, it was a rape, but, you know, I, at the same time, I, I wasn't using that word at the time. I was because I don't think you're ever prepared to use that word for what something that's happening to you. And so it wasn't as dangerous physically. And then, I mean, to be honest, like he, he, just, he was 15 years old and they just wanted all these different positions and this and that. So it was a really strange really strange experience. I mean, that's all detailed in my book. So um, after he was done, um, he just, he just you know, bizarrely kept on having a conversation with me, right? So he hung around and chatted to me for another 10 minutes or so. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll continue chatting to this person because, again, don't want to anger this person. Um, and then he left. Sometimes you do have to play along, yeah. right? I took this impact self-defense mm, class where yeah. you when people are, you learn to get out of different situations and when you're being attacked. And one of the tactics that I think is so helpful to learn about is what you were naturally doing, play along, lie, buy into their delusional reality because that person is not thinking rationally. You can't just say, oh, by the way, you just attacked me. So they don't sometimes even, like in their mind, sometimes they have told themselves these strange stories. Mm, Yeah. So did you find yourself sort of, just buying into the reality, like, okay, playing along until I just, I'm alive. He'll get away from me if I don't. Yeah. 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 And that's a really good description. Um, and that I was basically playing along to, to just minimize the sense of, of fighting, you know, to minimize the sense of, I didn't want to get along. I didn't want to do what he wanted to do, except I had to, because that was the best way for me to survive. Um, and it's annoying because I think, especially when you look at the criminal justice system, um, when they look at evidence and if any evidence points towards the victim playing along with um, with what the victim, with what the perpetrator wanted, they'll be like, oh, but she was asking for it. Like she wanted it to happen, right? Um, and actually the, the thing that's allowing you to survive is the fact that you're playing along except that's what's used against you. Um, you know, when when the, the defense is trying to make their argument. So it's really, it's really quite frustrating. And all these things I wanted to explore in the book. Um, but, you know, 10 years ago when it was happening to me, when I wasn't running the book, um, yeah, I was essentially playing along. And then once he left, I then decided, um, actually, I, th- I think I need help. And I, I had to call a friend for help. So you had your cell phone with you? Did, did. you have a signal? You were, so you called a friend. And was that friend supportive immediately? Yeah, I was lucky. She was great. And I just had a very, it was the strangest phone call I've ever made in my life where I called her up and I said, hey, um, how's it going? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this. And like, what are you up to? And I was like, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing too well. Like, I think, I think I've just been raped. And to my um, to, to my great fortune, I mean, she was great and she just kind of jumped into action right away. And maybe I sort of instinctively knew this particular friend, you know, she was good at like logistics and stuff. She was a bit older than me. So maybe she, I kind of knew she would be the best person to call. So she jumped into action right away and she was like, oh my God, tell me where you are. Are you okay? Are you safe now? I'm going to get the police to come find you. So I was really lucky um, because I think, you know, in the work I've done since then, a lot of survivors and victims, you know, that first person they disclose to, if it isn't a good reaction, if they aren't believed, if they're kind of undermined and blame themselves, then that causes a person to kind of withdraw and not share their story. Absolutely. Yeah. Believing the person straight away is the first thing, right, To, to supporting them and also for them to get any help. 
Yeah. Because to advocate for yourself is really hard when you feel that sense of shame. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So this work that you're doing now, so much of that derived from that experience and how it affected your life. So could you talk about how the assault and the aftermath led into your activism? Yeah, I mean, it was a very gradual process because, uh, you know, I, I know it's it's different for other people, but for me, I wasn't able to start becoming an activist on the issue um, and using kind of my professional skills to address it until I'd recovered myself. So, I mean, this all happened in 2008. And, you know, there was an entire year of my life that was on hold for while the criminal process, justice process was happening. There was a trial that was scheduled because he was caught um, there. You know, there was a huge media outcry <laughs> about my rape because it was all over the news. Um, bizarre, like kind of headlines, like, you know, Chinese student, Chinese tourist and brutally raped in the forest by a teenage boy. That must have been quite an experience to, on one hand, thank God he was caught Mm. and we want these things to have attention. Yeah. But as someone who's healing and so new in that journey must have been a whole mix of emotions yeah. to hear about it, like on the news. Yeah, I mean, anything's a huge mix of emotions when you're when that's something you've just experienced, when sexual trauma is something you've just experienced. And I guess for me, I mean, I didn't have to Google my rape, you know, but I'm a I'm a curious person, right? So, um, I think it was a whole combination of things because I, you know, um, I was out traveling and then this thing happened to me, and then the next day I still flew back to London. And I still went to that red carpet premiere. Um, I, you know, I remember putting on this designer's gown that had been lent to me and like I was using heavy duty concealer to cover up the bruises. It was really bizarre. Um, And then the next day um, I had another meeting with the police because they had to photograph my bruises because you have if you wait a few days, the bruises become darker. Right. So they show up better in photographs as evidence. And then I um, yeah, I sat down and I just Googled, you know, rape West Belfast. And I just saw these news stories about my own rape. And it was very bizarre to be on the receiving end of that. And, you know, there was like a 30 minute radio chat show on like the most popular radio chat show in Northern Ireland talking about my rape. Right. Wow. Um, and, and I think it was because, you know, there was a, an election coming up. So there were some people saying like, oh, is Belfast still a safe city? And the Lord Mayor of Belfast called it and said it would. So they were kind of using my attack as a talking point about you know, larger public issues. But at the same time, it felt very strange to have all these complete strangers talking about my rape and to feel like, well, nowhere in any of this, nowhere in this conversation is there any space for my voice as the victim, right? Was your name out publicly as the victim? So they couldn't theoretically ask you. But at the same time, these conversations are ideally conversations where your insight would be there. Yeah. Or if not my insight, because I was obviously very traumatized at the time, like somebody's insight, like or some, yeah, a survivor's Mm -hmm. voice. Mm -hmm. But there's just an assumption and a lot of the kind of media coverage. I'm like, well, there's almost like an assumption that I'm just going to be living the rest of my life in shame. Right. I mean, oh, that poor girl. Yeah. I mean, there actually was a woman who called up on that Northern Irish radio chat show and she said, oh, my heart goes out to that wee Chinese girl because her life is now ruined. And I remember hearing that and thinking, that's kind of weird. Right. Like, so you were challenging that notion. Like when you heard that, mm, did it feel like it was matching up with how you were feeling? Or did you hear that and go, uh, no, that's. I'm not going to, that's not going to be my experience. Well, I wasn't that 
that kind of adamant, like the, the second option. But at the time, because I, I was I was completely in shock, so I didn't know what was happening. I mean, like I was I was in shock for you know months, but at the same time, to hear some another person pronounce that my life was ruined was kind of insulting in some ways. So I was like, well, you don't know who I am, firstly, and secondly, that's just really damaging to say that. Um, did she think I might be listening, or did she think you know? Quite possibly, you know, given the statistics, there had been other victims and survivors hearing that statement. And did they think, oh, their lives are now ruined because of this? So So did that fuel mm -hmm. your desire to speak up and create this body of work? That yeah. You doing now? Yeah. Yeah. I think indirectly it did. I mean, and if I hadn't, um, you know, if my own case hadn't been so widely reported in the media, maybe I would have reacted differently. But I just remember thinking, OK, well, there's no space here for my voice. And that seems quite wrong because if there's anyone that has the right to tell that story, it's me. Um, it's the survivor. So, you know, when those years went by, I just kind of noticed, oh, well, when, every time you see rape or sexual violence in the media, there's almost this assumption that the survivor is, is too ashamed or, you know, she's too weakened and destroyed by what happened. Um, so she's never given a voice. Um, so I just remember thinking, like, no, actually, that probably needs to change. And I was like, well, you know, I've always been a writer. I worked in the film industry before. So, like, storytelling is my thing. So it's now more about I'm just going to use my ability as a storyteller to tell that particular story on my own terms. And was the novel the first idea that you had to do so? Obviously, you are doing many different kinds of events and things as well. But how did that decision come about that it was going to be? A novel. Um, hmm. So I've always been a writer. So I think writing's always been my default way of kind of expressing myself and and making sense of the world. So you know, before the assault, even like if anything happened or if I was trying to process things, I would write. So quite soon after the assault, I actually um, came up with the idea of writing a novel that would look equally at the perspectives of the victim and the perpetrator. Um, because I always had a lot of question marks. There were a lot of question marks hanging over that 15-year-old boy, right? When I found out he was 15, I was like, God, you know, what what happened in his life that led him to, to be like Those that? Those are important questions. Yeah. yeah. And and I so it was too soon then to actually do that research and delve into that kind of material as a writer. But it kind of stayed at the back of my mind, that sense of like, OK, no, I do want to write a book about this, um, but I'm not ready just yet. So but I did do other forms of writing. And so there were it was again, it was sort of a gradual process. So um, I did write kind of an essay which got published in an anthology about three years after the assault um, and then went on, you know, actually managed to get a job in the film industry again, but mainly, you know, programming for the Tribeca Film Festival um, in the Middle East. So I was there for a few years, went on, got a different job. So in some ways I was rebuilding my career and I'm like, oh, if I want, my career can now go in this direction. But I was like, you know what? I really want to go back and write that book and I really want to address the issue of sexual violence. So um, about five and a half years after the assaults, um, I was living in Singapore at that point. I just decided, like, I quit my job out there and I moved back to London where I'd, I'd been living, you know, um, prior to the assault and a few years after. I uh, moved back to London and decided to write this novel. So I enrolled in the creative writing program at Goldsmiths and started writing the novel. And then along the way, I started writing, you know, I've, I wrote a few pieces for the Huffington Post, um, which then kind of got circulated quite widely. So then my my like the wider group of friends I knew started to realize that actually I'd had this experience. Um, wow. Yeah. And the novel has done incredibly well. It is the winner of the Guardian's Not the Booker Prize 2017 in the UK and was nominated for the Edgar Award here in the US for first, a uh, best first novel, which is huge. As somebody who has been to thriller festivals and, and wrote a thriller, I 
I know what that means. That's incredible. So I just commend you so much for for writing it. And I, I'm so excited to read it. Yeah, well, thanks so much. Yeah, I wasn't expecting the Edgar uh, nomination at all. I mean, that gets decided. Uh, there's an awards banquet in New York at the end of April, which I'm looking forward to. Um, but yeah, I just, I literally woke up um, one morning and I looked at my Twitter and I was like, what? Everyone's like, oh, Edgar Award nomination to be nominated. I'm like, what? So That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Congratulations. That. that is so, so cool. So I have a question from a listener for this week that we are going to hear from Dr. Megan Fleming about. And it ties in a bit to the topic of bravery. So I also asked some Girl Boner listeners to weigh in with some thoughts. The question is this. It comes from Carla. Two years ago, I found out my husband was cheating on me and had been for years. It was so shocking. I have since realized that the marriage is not one I want to save, not only because of the infidelity, but every time I try to leave, I cave. Not because he's this great guy and I've forgiven him and we're happy. He's not. I haven't. We're not. It's because I'm terrified of going out on my own, of starting over. I feel stuck and miserable, but also paralyzed. It's made me scared in my whole life like I can't even function well at work. Even my friendships are suffering. It's like I don't know who I am anymore. Sorry for being so pathetic, Carla. Carla, you are not pathetic. Thank you so much for sharing so vulnerably. And I think a question that a lot of people are going to relate to and benefit from. Here's what Dr. Megan of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Carla, let me just start by saying that you're anything but pathetic. You know, I think it's really great and amazing and bold, really bold to allow yourself to know and sort of speak your own truth and find your own voice. Um, you know, it's not really clear to me, you know, I know that you've been married for seven years and don't have kids. Um, I'm not sure whether in a sense, losing yourself felt like a slippery slope and sort of, uh, and, or more like a light switch that sort of one day it just felt like, I don't even know who I am anymore. But I guess the part that I really want to encourage you to sort of look at, which is in what ways have you potentially co-created the situation? And by that, I mean, again, it's not for a sense of blame, but a more sense of an empowerment, right? Because when we own and take responsibility for, in a sense, what I call our 50, 100% of our 50%, it's what then will allow you to take whatever bold steps and actions on behalf of yourself. Because what seems clear to me, independent in a sense of whether or not you stay in this marriage, is that you can't imagine living the rest of your life this way and that there's no reason you should. Um, I absolutely want you to do the work to truly find yourself and to be able to name and identify what your needs are and, and how you're going to get them met. Um, you know, because it's striking, as you say, even your friendships are suffering. You know, it's unclear to me whether um, your husband might be controlling and in any way um, you feel like you don't have the freedom to, um, you know, be making your plans and seeing your friends and or if it's more of your own internal process that because whether it might be depression or anxiety, I'm hearing you say you're feeling really stuck and miserable, but also paralyzed, right? And, you know, I think that is a really critical piece here because beyond anything else, it's like we call it pattern interrupt. It's it's what is going to help you move into action. And in a sense, what we call imperfect action, right? There's not one right next step, but it is taking a step. And based on that 
how does it go? How does it feel? If it's in the right direction, fantastic, keep going. And if it's not, you thought with best intentions it was the right next step, but if it doesn't feel that way experientially, you pivot. And based on that information and the experience, you then determine, okay, now in this given moment, what feels like the right next step? So from my perspective, as I'm hearing you in this question, I think these next steps are to take actions on behalf of yourself. And as I said before, what are your needs? Uh, what does make you happy? And before making the, the bigger decision about your marriage, because again, the fear of leaving is, I imagine, you know, there's no one else out there or I can't make it on my own. First of all, you know, to recognize, as I said, it starts with fear. And I don't know if you've heard the expression, fear, we sort of say, is false evidence appearing real. The reality is I don't know and you don't know, but it is an unknown. And guess what? We don't like the unknown. Um, and so I think part of what will make it less scary is when you, even while in your marriage, start to take those bold actions on behalf of yourself so that you get to, in a sense, have your own chops, like in terms of like getting the muscle memory and the experience to be like, oh, look at all the things I can do and be on my own. And finding, um, first of all, uh, connecting with your friends and nurturing and watering sort of the guard of those relationships. But then also thinking about what hobbies, interests, passions do I have? And how do I start to explore those? Because I think part of what's going to help you really get unstuck and answer big picture, is it to go out on my own or you know, again, I don't know whether you guys did any couples therapy or, uh, you know, because again, I, you said about not willing to forgive, you know, it's not always about forgiveness, but I'm not sure whether or not you guys actually have done work or just try to figure it out on your own. So I think going back to this bigger question, it's to first take care of you. You know, I always say the reason they say to put the oxygen mask on yourself is because First and foremost, it starts with self-love and self-care. And once you start to get your own needs met and build your confidence in yourself and what you're capable of, then I think you're going to be in a much better place to answer the definitive question of whether or not uh, this is the relationship for you. And certainly if it's not, to know with confidence that you are okay on your own. You are more than enough. You are. You have all that you need. And what you don't have, guess what? You don't need it yet. So, you know, what I'm really encouraging you to do is to, first of all, recognize um, any limiting beliefs that have gotten in the way of you taking action on behalf of yourself. And to think about what are the bold next steps. I often refer to them as just right steps. And I sort of think of Goldilocks, right? It's the not too big, like moving out and not too small, like, you know, maybe it's just going to lunch with a friend, but like what feels like that uncomfortable stretch where you are sort of going out on your own and, you know, maybe it's taking a new class um, or um, taking up a new hobby or, you know, learning a new language. Like what is something that feels a little bit out of your comfort zone that you can step into and really um, develop experientially a greater sense of the possibilities and what you're capable of doing all on your own. Um, I'm really excited that you have the clarity that things need to change and being comfortably uncomfortable is no longer acceptable and that you are absolutely have the capacity to take one step at a time toward becoming and embodying all of who you are and who you want to be and how you want to show up in the world.
So as always, please do follow up. Can't wait to hear how your experience goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I loved what she had to say. Carla, I wanted you to hear from other voices as well, because I think we can learn a lot from other people's brave experiences. And as you step out of your comfort zone and, and do this personal work, which I think is amazing, and I'm excited for you too, I thought some of this might be helpful. So I received this one from Robert. Robert said, when my, my wife and I were exchanging sexual history as we became exclusive, I was painfully honest, including experimentation with men, rape by man, molestation by a teen when I was a boy, and fears that would make me a molester, even though I had never had any such desire. I also admitted how I had been emotionally unavailable in previous relationships. And when I asked Robert what allowed or inspired him to be so open and honest, he said he was just getting sober. He'd started therapy and he liked this woman who's now his wife and has been for many years. And he admired her insistence on respect and honesty. I love that. Winnie, is there a person in your journey who has been particularly helpful as you've been going through the process and especially early on when you were healing from the assault? Um, I've had lots of really good friends that have been incredibly helpful. Um, so I, um, you know, I tend to be single actually in my in my life just because things haven't really worked out um, otherwise. So I, you know, I'm quite used to being single and I've actually had friends who, who are people that are always in relationships who said, oh, I can't understand, I can't imagine trying to go through the aftermath of something like that without having a partner. And yet, actually, I know a lot of victims and survivors whose relationships fell apart in the, in the aftermath of that kind of trauma because oftentimes partners don't know what to do and, and that puts a huge strain on the relationship. So I, I again, kind of consider myself lucky that I, w- I was single and I, I didn't have to worry about this affecting my a relationship that I was in. And yet at the same time, I had some really great friends that supported me, um, really, really good friends. Um, but at the end of the day, and, like, and this might sound like a strange answer, the one person that helps me get through it was me. And the only person who's ever going to really understand what you're going through, who can advocate for yourself, is yourself. So in a bizarre way, that, that awful thing I went through, the rape and the aftermath, actually just made me realize you know what, I really have to, I have to be honest with myself and I I have to advocate for myself because no one else can really do it. As much as my friends want to, they don't know actually what it's like to be through what I've gone through. I had other friends who were victims as well, but every scenario is different, right? So you're the only one going through that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, in some ways it's a huge burden, you know, on the victim and on the survivor. And it's not like you have to be, I mean, I know what, if I think back to what it was like those years, it was like I was constantly carrying this mountain around, but it's okay to take a break and not, you know, not engage with the world for like a day or so, right? If the mountain gets to be too much. But um, yeah, in a bizarre way, I kind of built up this resilience and this this sense of like self-reliance where I realized the only person that could really fight for me was myself. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's not ideal. In the ideal world, there would be kind of a public system that provides better resources for victims. You know, there's more of a, there would be more of a support or like a safety network out there for um, for victims. Um, but that doesn't always happen. And again, I again, I feel like I'm lucky because I, I was 29 when it happened. So I kind of developed professional skills. I was, you know, I have a good education. So I developed the kind of confidence already. Um, but I would say, I mean, just in, in t- relation to what Carla had said, Carla's experience and, and Robert's experience, I mean, it's really important to just be honest to yourself and to realize that 
you know, there is an essence of you that's never going to really change, right? Um, and you kind of have to be true to that essence of yourself. Otherwise, you're never going to be happy. So after my assault, I felt like I was never going to be the person that I'd been before, right? Because Winnie, before the assault, was very outgoing, was very confident, loved traveling on her own. And right after the assault, I was like, I can't even leave my apartment on my own because the agoraphobia was really bad. I was getting flashbacks and panic attacks all the time. So I just felt so diminished as a person. I often describe it as... Like you're you're a fish that's been gutted. So maybe on the outside I seemed fine, but like inside I was completely hollow. Couldn't feel emotions properly. Felt like I just didn't have the self confidence, um, and I was just a ghost of the person I'd been before. And there was a great sense of loss because I was wondering, you know, am I ever going to be that person I was before? Did this 15 year old boy take everything away from me? And oftentimes it felt like that. But you know, eventually over time I did recover, and some of that came through realizing what it was I'd loved doing before. And, and like, um, it'd been, but like the, the, the counselor had said, um, just pushing yourself a little bit to try to reclaim some of that. So for me, it was like going, I mean, I love the outdoors and yet now going outdoors freaked me out. So I'm like, okay, can I go to a park for like five minutes on my own? And then like next week, okay, can I go to a park for like 15 minutes on my own? And just kind of pushing myself a little bit in a direction towards what I used to love doing and eventually being able to reclaim it that way. Mm. I love that, the baby steps and, like you said, the self-honesty in knowing that, you know, this is how you're feeling in this moment. And also knowing that doesn't mean you're always going to feel this exact same way, you know, Um, that it's a natural thing. Kit shared this with us. She said, I told my mom that her best friend's husband was molesting me. I was 10 years old, terrified because we lived with them at the time. But my courage got me out of the situation, kept my sister safe, and helped me help other friends who didn't have my coping skills and needed to know they weren't alone when the time came for them to face their own demons. It also helped to create the advocate I am today. You really pay things forward as well. You are helping so many people. And I wonder, in sharing your story, in writing your novel, in in carrying on your activism, what would you say is the biggest reward for you? I think hearing from other people, sometimes other survivors or other people who don't know anything about these experiences who have then either heard me talk or read the book and say, actually, it touched me. It made me realize different things about the way sexual violence exists in our society. And it made me realize how things need to change. So having other survivors read it and say, um, okay, I no longer feel so alone, or I, I realize that kind of the experiences I've been through have been validated because because it sounds a lot like what you went through. Um, that's really important because for me, in in the months and the years right after my assaults, it, it's incredibly lonely because you feel like no one else knows what you're going through. Um, and even though I had lots of friends who were supportive, like none of them were going exactly through what I've been going through. So that sense of loneliness um, is something which can be changed a little bit if you start to realize, okay, there's other people out there who. Who believe what you're doing, uh, who believe that that what happened to you is is an awful thing and that you are slowly going to be able to recover. Um, and I never thought, you know, there were times when I never thought I'd be able to recover and get my life back. And and so for me to be able to do, to do this work now and hear from other survivors who say that actually, yeah, I feel a bit more hopeful now because of reading your book, then yeah, that means a huge deal to me. Mm. I think so. Stories are so powerful mm, for that, that reason. Yeah. It's such a wonderful way to help people feel validated in their own experiences. Yeah, yeah. 
Elizabeth shared this. She said, hi, August. In response to your something brave, I explored polyamory and realized that it is what I have been all my life. I'm out to a lot of people, but not everyone yet, hence the private message. Thank you for that, Elizabeth. I know you said that you were anonymous at first, at least in the press, mm-hmm. and your friend knew, and yeah. some some people perhaps knew. At a certain point, did you find yourself kind of coming out? Was there a... Uh, a coming out or or maybe many coming outs mm. as I am a survivor victim of this. Yeah. I mean, again, like like everything, it was a gradual process. So I, I did tell a number of close friends actually shortly after the assault, partly because I'm like, well, if all of Belfast knows <laughs> that this rape has happened, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit silly for me to like not tell my close friends. I also yeah. felt like I needed their help and their support and I couldn't sure. get that unless I really told them what happened. So um, and, and again, I was lucky because they really believed me and they supported me in a lot of different ways. Um, and then I just didn't really i really just focused on recovering which meant it was very focused on just kind of me and you know a getting through the criminal justice process he ended up being convicted in the end um he was sentenced to eight years he's her four um but you know at least that's a conviction and, and many other victims don't have that luxury um so a lot of it was just okay get through the criminal justice process and then work on rebuilding my life and there was a period where i didn't really tell that many other people i moved to the middle east um had a job that was really interesting and i didn't tell anyone just because it was sort of a clean slate. I wanted to be able to, I guess, prove to myself that I could rebuild my career. Um, yeah. And then eventually um, I, I I decided that when I started to work on the issue, like I was going to have to be more out and more public about my own experience. So it was a process, again, of writing that essay, which got published in the book. And then once I started writing the Huffington Post articles, well, then it's totally out there and anyone can see that. Right. Um, so it, do, it did feel really exposing at the time. And I think most most survivors that decide to, to turn to the media or share their experience on the media or even if they send an anonymous tweet, it can feel really exposing that first time. Um, but, you know, so again, I, I, I took it gradually and I was like, well, you know, every time I put it, I put it out there, you know, I was lucky and nobody said oh, you're making it up or anything. So I was like, OK, no, I, I can I can deal with this. And then and then it became more and more gradual. And eventually, you know, with the, the Clear Lines Festival that I founded, we had a lot of press coverage there. And then with the book, I mean, I've had loads of press coverage in the UK. So now kind of it's impossible for someone to Google my name and not know I'm a rape survivor. And that's sort of a strange thing as well, because, you know, I don't want that to be my entire identity but for the time being that that's part and parcel of doing this work as an activist yeah i could see that i could see that and i think in reading your story and hearing you speak people also see the breadth of who you are and who all survivors are that we are all so much more than our darkest experience or um, incident yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because when you hear about news stories, you know, like like mine, like Chinese woman raped in a park, like you only ever hear about the, the victim in the moment of the assaults. So you don't know anything about because her identity is generally held back. You don't know anything about her having a past or, or having a future. And so there's always this kind of sense of like, OK, people get raped out there, but it's not people we know because those people don't have identities. When in reality, if you look at the statistics, you know, one in five or six women will be the victim of at least an attempted rape. So that's a lot of people out there and yet you those stories almost exist separate from from these people that have identities sure which would be hard to see your own future perhaps if you do only hear people saying things like well then your life is ruined yeah and then what you hear you don't hear so much about the the growth and the beauty that can come later for sure 
Bradley shared this. He said, my super brave thing that I've done is come out to my three closest female friends, Melissa, Lisa, and Maria, as a chronic masturbator. I was always so ashamed of what I was doing and never told anyone. I used to think that I was going to take that to my grave, but thanks to my therapist, I was able to open up to my friends and tell them what I do, what I think, and how I feel. Shame seems to be such an insidious thing, mm-hmm. such a common thing and such an isolating thing. Yeah, yeah. What has most helped you deal with shame or what advice would you give other people as far as healing from that specific piece of of any kind of difficult situation but especially assault yeah i mean i would say you know where does the shame come from right it's this this kind of like societally socially constructed thing where you know i guess you know we live in a patriarchal culture or you know have come from those kind of that that sort of framework so you know the shame is something that's created to make rape victims feel less for some reason right and you know it's unfortunately it does work in a lot of ways because immediately after the assault you do feel like you're less of a person right i was very much reduced to kind of a ghost of me and yet for me i just started to realize well actually like why should i be ashamed of something that was never my fault to begin with right the very definition of sexual assault was that it didn't involve your consent it didn't involve anything you did even though there's a lot of victim blaming out there but at the end of the day i was just walking through a park and then happened to cross paths with the perpetrator and that's the same thing if if you meet somebody when you're out at night and somebody is unfortunately drugged and assaulted again it was it wasn't anything that the victim did it was they just happened to cross paths with that perpetrator as unfortunate as it is so the shame really should only ever fall on the perpetrator because those are the actions that caused the trauma it's not anything the victim ever did so i think it's it's just a kind of turning that equation on its head and realizing the shame is something that doesn't it shouldn't exist for victims because we never did anything wrong in the first place the shame should be for the perpetrators so once you realize that shame is completely invented then you're like you know what i actually don't even i shouldn't even have to feel shame anymore and so for me i'm like i don't even care if people think that that's awful that i'm a rape victim and you know think differently of me um, I don't value their opinion anyway, right? Yeah, because yeah. that it opinion... It says so much about them, not yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. Or And or society. Yeah. But it doesn't have anything to do with you. Yeah. Really. Yeah, exactly. Like, I know I'm a good person. I know I did nothing wrong, and I'm doing the best that I can with what I've been given, so I shouldn't have to be ashamed of anything. So so I think it's that realization that shame is just a completely artificial construction in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to rape victims. So reminding yourself of that, even if you aren't yet able to feel it, I imagine, the awareness... Yeah. Like rationally knowing, wait a minute, no. Yeah. This is yeah. not something that is shameful that I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, just to add to that, um, you know, our friends and family and colleagues and, you know, people we know don't aren't necessarily the best educated about this issue. So they may some, say something like, are you sure that really happened or something victim blaming? And again, that's not your fault. That's the fault of them being not very educated on the issue and and kind of falling into these sorts of myths about rape and about sexual violence. So if you do hear something from someone which is victim blaming, just kind of write it off as something which actually isn't really all that valid, you know? Completely. Yeah, 100%. The last one I'm going to share today is from Brianna, who said this, I came out as bisexual to my Mormon family, then came out pregnant and unwed and polyamorous. I lost family I had known and was very close to from childhood. I was shunned by my Mormon friends when I was pregnant because I had moved out of state and no one knew I was bisexual there. Then one morning I woke up and decided that the whole situation was toxic. I let all of the people who distanced themselves to me, 
all of those people who changed their interactions and made me feel guilty. I let in the good and the light. I ended up with even more amazing people in my life, most of whom I handpicked to be my chosen family. I chose light. It was really hard walking away from those family members who helped raise me, but the religion that I had been raised with also, too. I knew that I had to be my true self. I would have, I would have never survived that other life, and now I am free. It's really powerful, wow. Brianna. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Turning points. I wonder mm. she she was able to turn things around and let go yeah. of, of what was hurting her. And I'm sure there were is a very gradual process, as you said, and also certain events or moments in your life that served as a sort of turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Because in some ways it, it does, these kinds of experiences make you realize like who, who was there in your life that, that really gets you, that really supports you and who was there that isn't. Right. And then the people that aren't really there for you, just cut them out of your life. Right. You know, I mean, easier said than done, especially if they're related to you, but at the same time, like you can minimize things, uh, relationships that don't really bring you what you need. Um, so for me, if I, I, I didn't have that many friends. I, I wasn't kind of isolated by any friends. But if there were, if there are people that react weirdly or you know don't really want to interact with me because I'm so public about being a rape victim, I'm like I don't need you in my life anyway, right? So, right. so I kind of drew a pretty hard line and I said if if I come out to friends as a rape victim and they don't, they're not there for me or they say something kind of damaging or useless, I'm like I, that person's off my list, right? Like I just I don't need that person in my life. So, and that and again, people can come back into into your life and sometimes it does take people. It does take a while for people to come to terms with the fact that you are bisexual or a rape victim or, or any other form of something that maybe brings shame to them. But, you know, it's not my job to, to educate, you know, all these other people. It's my job to kind of surround myself with the people that are going to support me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know many people call you brave, have considered you brave. You're writing to be brave. You're speaking out as brave. Do you feel brave doing this work? Um, not really. You know, I just I just feel like I'm just doing what needs to be done. Um, you know, I never really. Yeah, I don't know. I suppose I always I always love traveling. I always love kind of uncharted territories. So something that's a kind of predictable life is incredibly boring for me. Right. So um, that sort of routine nine to five thing I can't do. Uh, maybe even sort of like the routine relationship thing I can't do, which is maybe why I'm single. I don't know. But um, but, I, you know, for me, I just kind of do what. It, what feels right to me and what I feel what I feel is necessary and what I feel is the best match for for my own kind of skills and talents and interests so you know I didn't really set out to be like yeah I'm gonna be brave and you know challenge the establishment I'm just like no I'm just speaking you know we've heard that phrase earlier this hour like speaking your truth I'm just kind of speaking my truth and a truth which I know is a truth for lots of other people out there I imagine looking back some of the things that might seem brave to you which I see so much bravery in that you played along when you needed to, that you decided to take another step forward and then another step forward. You know, the, the, the quote, little steps sometimes mm. are so profound. Yeah. And a lot of times we, there's so much focus on one particular thing, one quote, big thing that happens. What felt brave, what has felt brave to you in your life? That I've done. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, there were definitely times when I I didn't feel brave. I mean, immediately after the assault for years, I'm like, God, I'm a complete loser, right? Like, I, you know, I would break down crying. I probably still can at some point, you know, these days, because I think trauma is something which you never is always going to be able to, to have that impact on you when you least expect it. But I mean, certainly the years after the assault, I felt like I was just constantly crying all the time right and I just remember thinking like what happened to me like I used to be able to like step into a room and like work my way through a cocktail party and network and stuff I'm like I can't even talk to strangers anymore because I can't trust people because a 15 year old boy raped me violently so so I kind of felt really diminished and I felt like the opposite of brave um so what was maybe the bravest well okay there's there's two things one in terms of rebuilding my life and reclaiming it i i realized like i've always known travel is like one of my greatest joys so it was very um it, it was just awful for me to to be a victim of this kind of trauma and the and to have the absolute lack of bravery in terms of stepping out of my apartment and i'm like if i can't even i can't even travel anymore like what what happened to the person i used to be um so i kind of realized um i had a lot of depression like right after the assault and for um for a good year and a half and i just kind of realized i'm happiest when i'm traveling so while i try going on a trip on my own right um again the by that point, the criminal justice process was over. So in a bizarre way, that actually lifted the PTSD. But it still was a very big thing for me to... I, like, I booked a, a round trip ticket to Bangkok for three months and I, I didn't plan anything. I'm like, I'm just going to... She's gonna fly Bangkok. Was that <laughs> a typical thing for you before to just up and go away for three months? Well, not for three months because I'd had a job and all that. But by this point, I no longer had a job because I, I couldn't gotcha. work so after the assault. Freedom and, yeah. yeah. So in some ways, like I didn't have a job anymore, which and that was a huge loss for me to not be able to continue that career that I had or wanted to have as a film producer. But I realized like I can't keep the job up. I can't try to get these films made and also be looking after my own like health and you know my own self worth because I just didn't have the energy to do that um, when I had PTSD. So I, I was unemployed for a number of years, and that was really bad for my self-esteem, but maybe also really good to have the space to just focus on rebuilding me from the ground up. Um, again, I was lucky. I had, I had some savings. Friends lent me money. I was able to get incapacity benefit um, from the British government. Um, but I was just like, okay, I'm just going to travel for three months and just, and just see what happens. And some of it was, like, I suppose I'm inherently an optimistic person. So despite having been raped by a 15-year-old, I also realized, well, the majority of people out there in this world are actually nice they're good people right so I happen to come across one really bad person but hopefully if I go traveling I'm going to meet more people and most of them are going to be good people um so I yeah I had I had a blast I was terrified at times to travel on my own I've always traveled on my own a lot but for me you know Southeast Asia is really cheap to get around as a Chinese person I don't stick out um so I actually blended in a fair amount um and I, I maybe felt safer that way. Um, so I just got, I, you know, it was, it was awesome. I would just get to read in my guidebook about what place sounded cool. And I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go there, right? So so I did that. And it was it was amazing. It was amazing. And nothing happened. Nothing bad happened to me. And was it healing? Was it once mm. you do something that is scary Yeah. and you have a positive experience, I feel like that can help cement the healing or move it along to yeah. feel healthier? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess for me, the attitude I had was, okay, how can I, okay, this really awful thing has happened to me, um, which, you know, is going to cast a shadow over my entire life. But what um, what can I do to create more distance between now, the present moment, and that thing that happened in the past? So for me, it was like, okay, build up as many experiences as you can once you feel like you're able to. So if, if you know, I traveled for three months and I visited 
a whole bunch of different countries. And so suddenly there was three months of really great memories that stood between me now and that really awful memory. So so I just kind of continued in that way. I mean, I didn't obviously travel for three months. I didn't go on any further really, really long trips, but I was I was able to kind of reclaim my love of traveling and to prove to myself, no, I can travel my own again and, and still be safe. So that was one thing. Um, I think the other thing was actually just writing the novel um, because I knew at the back of my mind I wanted to write it, and uh, you know I could have I could have carried on and I you know ten years after all I could have not written it, but I just realized actually I need that's what I need to do. So I, I quit my very well paid job in Singapore and I came and I you know I now I work as an artist so I as a as a writer so I don't have a steady salary. Um, so that you know that's a bit scary. Um, be great to have a regular paycheck, but don't without, at this point. The, without any sort of uh, nine to five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just, just for, for writing. And yeah, doing your own thing exactly. And... I mean, you know what? I mean, lots of people in LA know what that's like. But I was like, well, okay, you know. But I, I wasn't going to have the headspace um, to be able, or the time um, to be able to write the book I wanted to if I was still trying to keep up a nine to five job. So I quit my job and I, um, I just moved back to London and I went back to being a student again and like living on a really tight budget, um, and and wrote the book and. The book is, in a lot of ways, it gets. It, I mean, it's it's two perspectives, right? It's Vivian, the victim, who's quite similar to me, and then there's Johnny, who is like a fictional version of the stranger that I actually never really knew. I mean, he's that 15 year old. Well, he's not 15. He's not 15 anymore, but he will always be a big stranger. He will always be a stranger for me. Just somebody who happened to have changed the course of my life through his actions. So I wanted to kind of explore him. Um, and create a humanity for him and try to understand his childhood and where he came from. Um, but in writing Vivian, I was incredibly exposing about, I mean, like the assaults in the book is very similar to what I went through and all that, all the feelings I just described of being a complete loser and the constant crying and everything that's in the book. Cause I felt like that is the necessary, I need to create a really honest depiction of what it's like to be a rape victim and all the stuff you have to go through afterwards and also show the path towards recovery. But all the really bad stuff that in some ways I might feel ashamed about, I'm like, no, that's in there. Like that, that has to be in there. Otherwise it's not, it's not the whole picture. So yeah. And, but I felt like the book needed to do justice to the survivor's experience, which meant showing kind of every single aspect of how it affects you. What are the biggest rewards? I feel like if, someone's going through the healing process or maybe they're brand new to to it they're feeling in a, they're in a dark place sometimes it's really important to be able to see the opposite of what that comment you heard about you know your life is pretty much sucky now kind of thing uh, but that all of this work that you've been doing and and the healing work what would you like people to know as far as the the positives that can, they can potentially look forward to um, the positives are that you you can rebuild your life and then you can make it to be even more of a life than what you had before, right? Because, I mean, you know, there's that saying, well, I suppose it's true as well, that if, if a bone is broken and it heals, it actually is stronger, right? So, you know, I don't want to fall into that trope of like, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But at the end of the day, if you do recover from a trauma like that, if you are able to rebuild your life, there is this incredible sense of, you know, of appreciation for the world, you know, um, of of just delighting in the beauty that the world has to offer because there's certainly a time in my life when I couldn't appreciate that because I was too traumatized. Um, there was certainly a time where, you know, I 
been really impacted by this one awful person, but then that makes you realize the goodness that people have in this world that, that they can offer you is something to be really valued and cherished. Um, yeah, there were moments, I mean, I thought I was going to die during that assault. And then afterwards, there I definitely contemplated suicide at various points just because I was so miserable, right? Um, so to think that I could have not had my life as I know it now and to now be able to go out and, you know, meet new people in Los Angeles and, you know, hike in the sun and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's an incredible gift that we have, I think, that maybe we take for granted. Um, so in the wake of that kind of trauma, you actually realize that the things, like even everyday pleasures out there are things to really to really celebrate and to cherish. Um, so there's that, that kind of, like, change perspective on life and, and on the good things that the world has to offer. Um and um, I suppose the other thing is that there's an incredible community out there, people who are very supportive, other survivors and other advocates. And some of the strongest relationships and friendships I have now have been forged through the fact that we're both survivors or the fact that we all kind of know what it's like. And there is an incredibly strong kind of human bond there. Uh, there's an incredible way of understanding that we have, which, you know, that wouldn't have happened if I if I hadn't been assaulted, right? I mean, I wouldn't have written this book if I hadn't been assaulted. I may have written a different book, but it wouldn't have been this book about this particular topic that could have reached people in a certain kind of way. So, you know, I like to say, obviously, you can't predict what happens in life, but if something really awful happens to you, I'm not going to say that thing like everything happens for a reason, because that's quite annoying to hear sometimes, but really awful things can be overcome. And in the wake of it, you can become a stronger person and, and can start to, uh, and you can appreciate things and then build upon it to, to make your life more than what it was before. Sure. And to give purpose or meaning yeah. to what's happened as far as your experience and, yeah. and your healing and all of that. You mentioned that the rapist did four years? Yeah, he was sentenced to eight. And in Northern Ireland, there was at the time this policy called 50% remission, which because of all the, the political prisoners that, that had that were there um, because of um, the history of Northern Ireland, a lot of people only served 50% of their, um, their, their sentence. So he served four in the end. Was that a difficult experience for you to know that he was being released? Or did you feel that justice was served to... An important degree? Um, it's kind of arbitrary in some ways if you think about the legal sense of justice, right? Because, you know, I, I think here in in the U.S., for every 1,000 rapes that happen, only six rapists go to prison, right? So it's a huge, Jesus. yeah, it's a huge amount of of assaults and rapes don't actually ever result in a legal conviction. So in some ways, I'm like, it's a little bit selfish for me to be like, oh, well, you know, he didn't serve the full eight years when there's loads of other victims out there who haven't had the benefit of even a conviction for their perpetrator. Um, and then again, you know, if he'd been found guilty in the U.S., he probably would have been served a much higher sentence because there's just higher prison sentences in the U.S. So he may have gotten 15 or 20 years as opposed to eight. Um, so it's pretty arbitrary for me to say, that there's a specific number of years that he deserves because it, it changes per country, even right. though the crime is the same, right? Yeah. So, so for me, I kind of had to sort of divorce my own, my own rehabilitation and my own um, rebuilding my life from whatever happened to him, 
right? So like his whatever happened to him legally, that that's his journey. Um, but it shouldn't impact mine. Like I'm not going to be able to pin my own recovery. Like I don't, I didn't want to pin my own ability to recover on whatever happened to this complete stranger, right? Because um, there's you know in the same way we were complete strangers anyway to begin with. But now it's like okay, I can get really angry about what happens to him, but how is that going to help me, right? So it's about again rebuilding and becoming a more positive person in the wake of that, as opposed to getting really angry and. Um, you know, and wanting a sense of revenge because revenge is kind of arbitrary in some ways, especially when you're dealing with with the legal system. Yeah, and look what you're doing instead, which I think is really amazing. Yeah, much more healing. Yeah, much more healing for sure. Did that feel like a forgiveness, a letting go as far as that separation from that decision to say, that's that's that person's deal. That has nothing to do really with... with Yeah, I mean, some people do ask me if I forgive him and I you know and I have other I know other um, survivor activists who who will say they forgive their perpetrator and I I'm not there like I wouldn't say that I forgive because I don't think you can forgive somebody for doing something as bad as what happened to me right or maybe even that you need to I've heard yeah. some people say that you have to for yourself no I don't know that I agree with that. no <laughs> I don't agree with that and like uh, you know people can say whatever they want and maybe some people do feel they need to um but I just felt like you know I, I mean I wrote the book and the act of writing the book of imagining him as, as a human being that you do actually at some points there there is some empathy for the perpetrator at some points because he he was so young and he came from a really kind of broken background. Um, so I was trying to figure out how somebody evolves into a rapist at such a young age. So I was trying to imagine him as a human being. So for me, that is similar <laughs> to 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 forgiving him, I suppose, because that's at least seeing him as more than just a monster and that's seeing him as somebody who came from a certain place who maybe has the, has the ability to rehabilitate if if he wanted to, I suppose. So, This is a huge question, but what do you think that we need to do culturally as a society to get rid of this epidemic? So much. I mean, there's so much yeah. that needs to be done, but obviously we're, we are taking steps. I mean, hashtag me too. At least we're hearing the prevalence of how many experiences are out there, not just of sexual assault, but obviously sexual harassment, which is part of a spectrum that women um, and you know men also are on the receiving end of that kind of um, sexual intimidation. Um, so I think there's lots of steps. One is to hear those other stories and to realize the prevalence and to kind of give them the validity that they deserve. Um, and the second is um, to... Therefore, if we're allowed to listen to those stories and believe them, that hopefully will reduce the cultural sense of shame, right? I, I think if you start to realize that you're a rape victim and then there's like hundreds of other people out there, then why, why should hundreds of thousands of people feel ashamed, right? So once there's that, there's that kind of strength in numbers, I suppose, that um, that maybe helps to reduce the sense of shame, right? Um, and then obviously, you know, policies and systems need to be changed to better support survivors, right? So if you're looking at, you know, workplace sexual harassment, workplace sexual assault, like are there policies in place in those institutions that A, believe believe the victims, um, B, allow perpetrators to actually be held accountable so they don't per- don't so they don't perpetrate again, and then, you know, C, allow victims the breadth to be able to rebuild their lives and, and the careers that they want, right? Um, that does often doesn't exist in different workplaces. Um, you know, and then the other thing is obviously the criminal justice system, right? And having it essentially be a more efficient one. So so more than six out of 1,000 rapists go to jail. Um, and if, you know, we're able to um, 
perp- allow more perpetrators to actually be held accountable and hopefully they won't be committing these crimes again in the future and then affecting more people. And then a lot of it just comes down to sort of the next generation and, and educating boys and girls to look at sexual consent in a different way and to really value that in a different way. Um, and to realize that, you know, rape culture can be changed, but it kind of takes a kind of holistic approach, both from like criminal justice system and the way that the media report portrays things, but also in the kinds of things that we tell our boys and our girls, you know, when we're raising them and the way that sex and consent are taught in schools. Yeah, absolutely. That consent is a lifelong thing, yeah. you know, and and even consent around unwanted touch, platonic yeah. touch. Yeah, yeah you know, exactly. Just, don't just touch people. Yeah, like yeah. learning that when we were kids would be an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being here and for the work you're doing. I just think it's awesome. Thanks, August. Well, it's always nice to hear that. Would you share where people can learn more about you and your work? Sure. Um, I have a website, which I should be updating more often than I actually do. Um, so that's winniemly.com, um, winniemformotherli.com. Um, and then my, my book is called Dark Chapter. So that is a novel which you can get here in the U.S. If you just Google Dark Chapter Winnie Emily, it's in Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, um, most of the kind of online retailers. And then it's also in the U.K. as well. Um, and um, yeah. So those are the two, that's the book. And then I also have this festival called the Clear Lines Festival, which is about using the arts and and discussion to address sexual assault and consent. And um, we've had a few editions of it in London, and we're trying to move that to the U.S. as well. So if if you are keen mm-hmm. on kind of putting the effort in and volunteering and trying to make a Clear Lines Festival happen where you are, um, you can find us at clearlines.org.uk. Excellent. And I will share links to everything you mentioned on the follow-up blog post. And if you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes. If you haven't, you can also leave us a simple review while you're there and follow the show on Spotify. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.